five. He was middle-aged, rather stooped, and wearing a somber tweed jacket that Emily noticed was frayed at the cuffs. Michael, this is my daughter Emily, said Helen, and this is Mr. Dillon, Emily, one of the older artists in the valley. Dillon set down his heaped plate. Black market food and plenty of it. That's why I came. Invitations are scarce nowadays. You're not quite so dependent on party dinners as all that, Michael. Emily has seen some of your paintings in New York. Were they well hung? he asked quickly. Galleries on Madison Avenue don't crowd their shows, as you know, Mr. Dillon, said Emily. It must be gratifying that they keep showing yours. He abandoned his roast beef long enough to give her a sharp, appraising look. How much longer I'll have anything to show, I don't know. Helen laid down her knife and fork, leaned toward him. What's the matter, Michael? Trouble? Dillon finished his beef with a last hasty gulp, smeared his face with, with his napkin, then flung it on the table. Trouble. You know how this valley was when he came, Helen. Unknown and unspoiled. A man could spend a lifetime painting nothing but those weirdly carven sandstone cliffs across the wash. I intended to. But now this damn secret project has found us out. There's going to be a new highway built smack across the valley and up the hill. The life in those rocks is going to ebb away. The whole valley will go dead. I'm going to have to leave here. Is your life dependent on just this one place, Michael? But where? He shrugged. Where in this war, I wonder? The sun was setting behind the Jemez peaks, and the Sangres were flushed red as the blood for which they had been named. The color faded, then it was suddenly dark. Time for the spying and the scuttlebutt, said Dylan. That's what these parties are for. What else in hell is there to talk about? They went out to the garden where most of their dinner companions were crowding around the sundial. Drawing closer, Emily could see them taking turns peering through a mounted telescope. Others were using binoculars. It's the hill we're looking at, dear, explained one of the women. In the daytime, you can't see a thing up there, but at night the whole mesa comes alive. Here, it's your turn now. Emily could see nothing but a cluster of lights spread over the mountains to the west. The woman continued, Maybe it doesn't look like anything to you, but we've been watching them spread north and south, covering the whole mesa. What in the world can they be doing up there? And working nights as well, to do it? Mrs. Cartier came out, followed by a maid bringing coffee. The night breeze had not come up yet. The evening was warm and quiet. It could have been pleasant sitting in the dusk, watching the moths fluttering around the light on the portal, listening to the birds sleepily chirping in the trees, and smelling the cool freshness of the water now turned into the Aksekia. Yet all this peace was ruptured by that project hanging about in a menacing aura of mystery and secrecy. Like the war, thought Emily, it was disrupting the even tenor of these people's empty lives. They hated it in the exact measure that they could not understand it. Project Y, I hear it's called, began one. Project Y, of course, a perfect concentration camp for socialists. It's a factory for manufacturing windshield wipers for our submarines, ventured another. You're all wrong, cried Jill shrilly. It's a home for pregnant WACS. Haven't you seen some of them? All this talk is foolishness, crossly exclaimed an elderly man named Bromley. 
Young man, you know very well you never see anyone from up there loitering in town. They're not allowed off the hill. Yes, but let's go inside, suggested Mrs. Cartier. It's getting so dark, I can't see the inside of my own cup. Emily followed Bromley and the others into the big living room, determined not to let the subject be dropped. Why can't those people come down, Mr. Bromley? She asked so indignantly that even Helen raised her eyebrows in surprise at her tone. Mr. Bromley did not need urging. He looked out of place in his conservative business suit, starch collar, and black Oxfords. A retired New York executive marooned in this touristy land of enchantment for his wife's health. He cared nothing about its lifeless scenery, uneconomical art, dusty ruins, the annoying customs of the native villagers, and the hijinks of his youthful companions. He sensibly spent his time reading five daily newspapers and market reports, keeping posted to the minute on-current affairs. Unable to get in a word all evening, he now cleared his throat with an authoritative rasp. As I was saying, Miss Chalmers, this is obviously a project of prime national importance and secrecy, he began pompously. There has not been released to the public press one iota of news about it. I myself don't claim to know anything about it. But I have it on good authority that no one on the project is allowed to leave the hill without special permission and all their mail is censored. But who are these people, these exes, wrapped up in all this hush-hush, asked Miss Cartier. Who knows, said Mr. Bromley. I am advised many of them even go under assumed names. Oh, I'd love to meet one and see what he looks like, laughed Mrs. Cartier. A bug-eyed scientist or a pot-bellied army general. Why, demanded Jill. Too dull for my taste, Laura. The conversation disturbed Emily. So that's why Gaylord hadn't come down to see her, or even written a note. A warm wave of forgiveness surged through her, instantly replaced by resentment at hearing him alluded to as a bug-eyed scientist. But it was time for brandy and scotch and sodas. And amidst the tinkle of ice and glasses, Miss Cartier turned to Helen. Helen, dear, you're the only soul in the valley who knows anything about these mysterious exes. They monopolize your tea room so completely you never have a place for your old friends. Come now, tell us who they are, really, and what in the world they're doing up there. Emily could see her mother stiffen slightly, and an almost imperceptible frown flit across her face as she suddenly realized that her hostess had invited her here expressly for this information. Why, really, Lara, how can I know anything about them? A few of them come down for dinner every evening. With my small place, they're all I can manage. I've simply had to give up serving people who didn't come often anyway. Project Y hasn't taken you over on, on lease, then? I mean, you haven't become an ex or a first cousin yet? Helen smiled. I'm just a person like we all are, even the exes, I suspect. Miss Cartier was still naggingly persistent. But what are they like, these exclusive clients of yours? The few I've met are just hard-working men, no different than you find anywhere, everywhere they come from. How could they be anything else? But of course your place is restricted to a few top men. What other working men, as you call them, could afford your dinners? Trust you to be exclusive, Helen, in whatever you do, snapped Miss Cartier. A momentary silence settled over the room, and in it, Emily detected a feeling that alienated her mother from the others. 
Why not, thought Emily proudly. She looked so warm and human, so well-bred and curiously prim in her neat but old tailored suit. For the first time, Emily understood why her mother held aloof from Miss Cartier's clique, with its chill brittleness, avid curiosity, and resentment against anything that interfered with their pleasant lives. Another round of drinks was being served. Voices were rising. The conversation was settling into a group condemnation of the hill and everyone on it. Emily felt a chilling apprehension for Gaylord. Her own drinks had stimulated her imagination. Abruptly, she stood up. We really must be going, Miss Cartier. I know my mother is tired, and we're both early risers. Outside, driving slowly back home through the warm, moonlit night, Emily felt the countryside rush back upon her, simple, sweet, and unspoiled as always. What people! Negative about everything. How glad I am to get out of there. They're all right, Emily, said Helen mildly. Just people, with a right to their opinions and dislikes like all of us. I noticed you didn't sparkle much, Mother. You hardly opened your mouth all evening. I'm just a maverick, dear. Back at the crossing, Emily helped her mother to light the lamps. Then, still thinking of Gaylord, she prowled about, upset and restless. For goodness sake, Emily, come out in the moonlight a few minutes and calm down. It's a wonderful night, and it's still early. They sat down on the high bank of the river. In the luminous, gray-blue light, everything stood out in new perspective. The high volcanic cliffs, the far buttes and mesas were two-dimensional, without depth, as if cut out of cardboard. The row of cottonwoods and the clumps of willows had lost their texture. Their fine tracery of leaf and branch was blurred to a soft solidity. To the north, black jagged tuño no longer stood out like a giant old molar rooted in the jawbone of the protruding foothills. It had taken on its dark and brooding timelessness as the midnight rendezvous of Indian spirits and Spanish brujas, and as if from its base poured the river in a wide bend silver, somber, and motionless as molten metal. If I were young and had taken a few drinks to upset me, I know just what I'd do to make me sleep well, said Helen after a time. What, take an aspirin, I suppose? I'd take a quick dip in the river down there by the willows. At night? Besides, I don't have my bathing suit here. Well, then, you wait here for me, said Helen calmly, stripping down to her slip, she began to pick her way gingerly down the bank. "'Mother!' called Emily, shaking off her slippers and peeling down her stockings. "'Wait for me!' Six. It was late in the afternoon, and Helen was beginning to prepare dinner. When Maria came, she put her to work, making sauce from a heap of dry red chili pods, which she had detached from one of the big ristras hanging from the vigas. Soon Emily arrived. Listless and bored, she watched Maria removing stems and seeds from each pod, grinding the brittle red skins and adding water and herbs to make a thick paste. Every so often, she soaked her hands in cold water, a surly frown on her face. "'Can I do anything to help?' asked Emily. "'I know you don't want to burn your fingers helping Maria,' answered Helen cheerfully. "'So brush up a little and set the tables if you like. Light the fire, too.' just a small blaze to chase away the chill. What had got into them both, Helen wondered. Maria's serpentine blood hadn't quite warmed up yet, but Emily was a different problem. She was still moping over that young Dr. Gaylord. 
Helen thought she would have to ask Dr. Breslau about him. He had made reservations for three that evening. They came into the kitchen a couple of hours later. "'Miss Chalmers, we're a little early. You don't mind?' said Dr. Breslau. Helen returned around to greet him and his two companions, an Italian whom he introduced as Dr. Farmer and a Dane named Mr. Baker. Alert and interested, they examined the restress of chili and the strings of garlic and onions hanging from the rafters above them and then bent down to the bowl of thick red sauce. Dr. Breslau dipped in his finger, tasted it, and grinned. Red hot. All the heat of last summer stored up in it, Dr. Breslau. And what do you call it, please? asked Mr. Farmer. Chili Caribe, just like adobe, isn't it? The Dane touched it gingerly with the tip of his finger. It's radiated. Yes, I feel the reaction, he said quietly, with a twinkle in his blue eyes. The Italian laughed like a boy. Maria ambled in with a huge platter of spare ribs. Helen plastered each chunk with the thick caribe and replaced it on the platter. Costillas adobaras, she said lightly, plastered ribs. Good, said Mr. Baker. I will have two helpings, please. I'm sorry, Helen answered swiftly. That's for tomorrow. It has to soak all night so the flavor won't come out while it's cooking. Ah, the factor of time must be included in the equation of taste, my friend, added the Italian. Is it not so? But don't be disappointed, went on Helen, opening the open door. See, your roast is already brown. Now if you give me just a minute more. Emily, light the candles now. There was no answer. Then Maria said grumpily from the doorway, She outside watching the crazy horse. Hear him run. They could all hear it now, even before they walked outside to join Emily on the high bank of the river. A dull, resounding thunder of hoofbeats, silence, and then another prolonged reverberation. Him crazy, snorted Maria. It was too dark to see across the river, but they could hear the lone stallion racing wildly up and down the field. Poor thing, murmured Helen. Oh, I hope he doesn't go into the fence. That tremendous, upswelling power, forever seeking transformation and release. So frightening and beautiful, too. She could feel the wonder and the mystery coming back upon her in a wave of compassion. You're shivering, Miss Chalmers. I think we go back inside now. The quiet, heavy-set and middle-aged Dane took her arm. Something in his whispering voice, his vague eyes, steadied her. Was he another one who knew it, too? Candles and fire lit in a little dining room. Helen and Emily served dinner. The men ate leisurely and hungrily, then sat talking and smoking over their coffee for nearly an hour. How good it was to see them full and relaxed and cheerful. She left them and returned to the kitchen. The stallion was still pounding up and down the long field across the river. Emily kept staring out the window into the darkness. Dr. Breslau roused her with a cheerful shout from the doorway. My little anthropologist, who hasn't spoken to me all evening. Well, I am in disgrace, no? Emily turned around grumpily. Oh, hello. I guess you were just too busy for me to interrupt. I'm never too busy to be interrupted by such a pretty girl, he stated vehemently. But tell me, you have been pursuing your studies in the ruins up the canyon, have you not? No, I haven't. I've been too busy on other things. Ah, but you should go up there in this fine weather. He gave Helen a quick look. The little birds are roosting for a while near their ancient nest. What a pleasant chapter in anthropology you might write up there. 
but I must pay now for two meals each because we ate to the power of two, yes? You pay for one now, Dr. Breslau, and the other when you come again, said Helen. Yes, we come back, said Mr. Farmer. Mr. Baker gave her a look of quiet concern, then followed his companion out. What strange men the project on the hill was drawing, Helen thought. German, Italian, Danish, Hungarian, and those Englishmen who had come down to dinner a week ago. The next day, Mrs. Frey stopped by for a chat. She was another old-timer in the region, having operated the lodge in Frijoles Canyon for years. Fortunately for her, said Emily, it and the ruins were in the Bandelier National Monument, which had not been included in the area taken over by the Los Alamos project. Well, I don't know, answered Mrs. Frey. Things don't look so good for us all summer. That outfit on the hill is going to take us over for a while. At least until they get some housing built, a bunch of exes will be quartered at the lodge. You too now, protested Emily. First the ranch school, then El Mirasol, Mother's Place, and now the country's most precious prehistoric remains in a national monument. The whole valley, everything, everybody is being taken over. For what? I don't mind it, honey, remonstrated Mrs. Frey. They've got a right to a place to eat and sleep. Some of them are right nice young men, too. But come on up before they take us over completely. There's a couple of ruins that ain't on the books, and you might give you something new. When she had puttered away in her old Ford, Helen returned to Emily. He was right, Emily. How quick he is. Who? Dr. Breslau. Remember what he said? The little birds are roosting for a while near their ancient nest. What's that got to do with what? Don't be so dumb. The little birds are pajaritos, the exes on the hill, and roosting near their ancient nest. Ticherege, which means place of the bird people, clearly told you that they were staying in Frijoles Lodge nearby. She began to laugh. What's so funny about that? Well, I just have a hunch that young Dr. Gaylord you've been mooning about is staying with Mrs. Frey. Now, if I were you, I'd go up there and see if your infatuation has worn off. You've got to get back to work sometime, you know. Go to see Mrs. Frey. She now shouted back at Helen. I'll be damned if I will. He knows where I am if he ever wants to see me. 7. Finishing his hasty dinner in the old ranch school's fuller lodge, Gaylord walked out on the large portal and leaned against one of its massive log pillars. His wristwatch in the June twilight showed that he had plenty of time for a cigarette. He lit it and stared unbelievingly at the scene before him. The nucleus of old log buildings and pine trees on the meadow that he had first seen a few months ago was now surrounded by a motley jumble of army barracks, wooden utility buildings, dormitories, ramshackle huts, trailer courts, and storage yards. Through his bulldozers were plowing more haphazard streets which roared a constant stream of trucks and jeeps. The dust was thick enough to cut with a knife. In its haze, he saw people swarming everywhere. G.I.s crowding about an old log trading post. Now the P.X. mounted security guards in big cowboy hats, riding in from their perimeter duty stations. Hundreds of working men arriving for the night shift. Long lines of men and women forming in front of the mess halls. Army officers, technicians, government officials, a woman in a silk dress hurrying toward the bathtub row. It seemed impossible that this isolated mesa top, high in the forest wilderness, had been transformed so quickly 
into such a madhouse of activity. To Gaylord, it looked like a movie setting for a western frontier town, a boom mining camp, an army post. Whatever it was, the project on the hill had no precedent, for over it hung an intangible miasma of mystery and secrecy. One didn't question it or his own presence. One did his job and let it go at that. Ah, my young friend, you're going down to the meeting? He recognized Dr. Breslau's voice before he turned around. Yes, sir. Well, let's be off. It will probably be crowded. They dodged across the swarming road, exchanging remarks above the clatter. Got a day off tomorrow, I hear. A Sunday, too. How do you rate that, Gaylord? Perhaps because I haven't had one yet, doctor. That's the kind of place this is. What are you going to do? Catch up on sleep. Dr. Breslau grinned. A waste of time. You only dream of beautiful young ladies. Gaylord could think of no reply. They came to a gaunt utility theater that served on Sunday for church services and during the week for frequent colloquia and conferences for staff members. Showing their badges to a security guard at the door, they walked inside. I hear you're getting along all right, Gaylord, said Breslau, walking down the aisle. Thank you, doctor. Nice to have seen you. Gaylord found a chair in back and sat down with proper modesty at being present in such distinguished company. Around him, almost anonymous in sweat-stained shirts and wrinkled trousers, there sat and lounged, talking in the aisles, physicists, chemists, metallurgists, mathematicians, engineers, and technicians, drawn from universities, laboratories, industrial plants, and hospitals throughout the USA. Among them, and recognized several men for whom he had worked on the Chicago pile, including Enrico Fermi, who traveled under the name of Eugene Farmer, and Dr. Arthur Compton, known as Mr. Comstock, Others had fled from Europe to escape Nazi persecution or capture. Sitting down next to Dr. Breslau was the great Danish physicist and pioneer explorer of the structure of the atom, Niels Bohr, whose pseudonym was Nicholas Baker. Off to the left sat a delegation from Great Britain, headed by Sir James Chadwick. Still more, whom Gaylord could not identify, kept coming in. Undoubtedly, he was looking at the most extraordinary galaxy of scientific stars ever gathered under one roof. As he sat there waiting for the room to fill and quiet, Gaylord knew that he had been lucky from the day he had been picked to work on the Chicago pile. That brief preliminary landing in the New World already seemed remotely far behind him. The new world he had glimpsed then had been no more than an entrancing, deceptively inviting shoreline. Now he saw it for what it was, a dark, unknown, and forbidding continent which threw up unknown obstacles, unguessed problems to hinder every foot of advance. Gaylord prided himself on his new doctorate. Now, dwarfed by an imposing staff of Nobel Prize winners and world-famous scientists, he sweated night and day over problems that seemed insignificant when they were assigned to him, but which seemed hopeless when he confronted them. Yet he persisted with methodical thoroughness. Gaylord, in fact, was an extremely capable young physicist, and at his early period of his career it was precisely his lack of imagination and his meticulous attention to detail that made him valuable. He prided himself with the little personal vanity he had that he never let his emotions get the best of him. 
emotions that he did not yet know he possessed in the periodic table of his own elemental personality. The room by now had filled and quieted. A subdued feeling of excitement washed over him when General Leslie R. Groves, in overall charge of the project of the Manhattan Engineer District, stood up for one of his infrequent appearances. Heavy set, his impeccable uniform in odd contrast to the sloppy shirts and pants of the scientists, Groves seemed to Gaylord to have the air of a bulldog worrying a bone. Chewing away, he assured every one of the 100 university-employed scientists present that 12 men had been brought in to help him. There were now, he said, nearly 1,200 military personnel, civilian government employees, and construction workers who were doing their best to provide living accommodations. Housing was still short, however. Until more space was made, was made available, he had taken over Frijoles Lodge in Bandelier National Monument, 14 miles away. He hoped that the men assigned there would understand why. Gaylord groaned to himself. He already had been transferred and had to commute the exorbitant distance over a lonely mountain road each day. The next speaker was a security officer whom Gaylord could not identify, but whom he resented instantly for his repetition of familiar facts. The speaker cautioned him not to give his address when writing letters. Post Office Box 1663. Santa Fe, New Mexico is all that is allowed. As you gentlemen know, it is the largest post office box in the world. To it are addressed boxcars of equipment, truckloads of supplies. Our children are born in it. We dwell in box 1663. This was an old joke already. Nobody smiled. Gaylord began to squirm uneasily in his seat. Despite the urgency, exhilaration, and pervading air of excitement as the work got underway, he had felt irked by the start of the strict secrecy. Now he was shaken by a sense of alarm as the speaker commenced reading from a new handbook on security. Do not establish or maintain social relations with residents of nearby communities. It is expected as condition of employment that project employees will break normal social relations with the outside world. Do not arrange for visits with friends or relations in nearby communities without special permission from the director. To emphasize the importance of these restrictions, the speaker now read a new memorandum issued by the security committee. Under no circumstances must any project employees go to parties or dances in nearby communities or maintain any other social relations except for quiet visits with their families. Make only very occasional visits with your families and get special permission in each case to do so. Gaylord's resentment flared. He had no real cause for frustration, being without a family to visit, and detesting parties and dances for which he had never had time to in school. Yet the memorandum touched the quick of his secret longing. There jumped at him the vision of Emily, excitedly talking at a gay party, swirling away in a dance. He pushed it away as a thin, shy, and ascetic-looking man with a crew haircut eased up on the platform. It was J. Robert Oppenheimer, the director. As always, he commanded Gaylord's instant attention and complete admiration. Things are getting underway, the director said simply. The conferences on procedures began about the middle of April. On the 14th, we began laying the bottom pole piece of the cyclotron magnet. 
material is coming in. The cyclotron from Harvard, two Van de Graaff electrostatic accelerators from the University of Wisconsin, the Cockroft Walton from Illinois, chemical and cryogenic equipment from the University of California. New facilities are shaping up next month, early in June. The first experiment will be performed. I think you know all the work that lies ahead of us. Experimental work of all kinds. Differential experiments for determining the cross-section for fission of specific isotopes and integral experiments for determining the average scattering of fission neutrons from actual tampers. Perfection of the use of the Van de Graaff. Measurements of nuclear constants of U-235, U-238, and plutonium over a wide range and final purification of the enriched fissionable materials. Hard work, long hours, the utmost concentration, Oppenheimer was saying. I do not have to remind you what it means to so many, but from one whom you all know, I have received this letter. And suddenly, almost miraculously, a great laughing president wielding a long cigarette holder like a sword and scepter, began speaking directly to Gaylord in the rousing, resonant voice of all America and with the invincible hope of the whole free world. I know that you and your colleagues are working on a hazardous matter under unusual circumstances. The fact that the outcome of your labors is of such great significance to the nation requires that this program be even more drastically guarded than other highly secret war developments. You are fully aware of the reasons why your own endeavors and those of your associates must be circumscribed by very special restrictions. Nevertheless, I wish you would express to the scientists assembled with you my deep appreciation of their willingness to undertake the task that lie before them in spite of the dangers and the personal sacrifices. Whatever the enemy may be planning, American science will be equal to the challenge. With, with this thought in mind, I send this note of confidence and appreciation. While this letter is secret, the contents of it may be disclosed to your associates under a pledge of secrecy. No, resolved Gaylord, striding out from the meeting. Nothing should swerve him from his task to which he had dedicated the highest hopes of his unspent youth. Nothing. This exaggerated exhilaration swept him to his car, carried him to the edge of the high mesa. Showing his pass, he was cleared through the guard gate and dropped swiftly down the tortuously winding canyon road. At the junction below, he stopped and looked back. Up above, the tech area complex of laboratories and shops stood out on the edge of the sheer high cliff. Flooded with spotlights, white and shining against dark sky and black mountain walls, it gleamed with all the romantic unreality of a medieval castle, an isolated monastery in mysterious Tibet. A queer tingle raced up his spine. For the first time, he realized why it was beginning to be called Shangri-La, the forbidden city of atomic research. He drove on now through the dark and untouched mountain wilderness. A deer bounded out of the pinions. A porcupine waddled across the road and stopped, blinded by the headlights. Soon the rough dirt road narrowed. Dizzy drops and horseshoe curves leapt at him from the darkness. His high mood ebbed. Wearily he reached Frijoles and climbed into bed. When he got up next morning, he was merely a run-down machine, a fish out of water, a man with a day off and nothing to do. 
The isolated stone lodge always acted on Gaylord like this. It cut him off psychologically as well as geographically from Los Alamos, marooning him in a world with which he had no contact. It sat in a deep, narrow valley flanked on each side by sheer high cliffs of pink and buff tuffa, down which trickled El Rito de los Frijoles, the little river of the beans. The lodge was run by homey Mrs. Frey, who offered comfortable rooms and good meals. It was now utilized, as explained at the security lecture, by the project to temporarily house staff members without permanent quarters on the hill. Unaccountably irritable, Gaylord walked up the canyon in front of the caves, pecked into the cliffs, and packed the crumbled walls of rude talus slope house groups. He came then to the excavated ruins of ancient Tioni, once a circular valley, five stories high, with two large kivas sunk in its enclosed court. Allegedly famous, it didn't interest Gaylord. How could Emily be so devoted to such jumbled old ruins it was a mystery? What was the good of them now, littering these sunless canyons? A mile further, he glimpsed a huge cave high in the cliffs. From its floor protruded the tip of a ladder leading down into another of those ever-present kivas. Another ladder led up to the cave itself. On a sudden impulse, he climbed up. Here he saw her sitting on the rim of the kiva. It was as if she had been patiently waiting for him, staring dreamily out across the wide blue distance that stretched unheeded far below. Her little red beret lay in her lap. The wind tussled her soft brown hair. She turned to see him and, smiling, lifted her hand in greeting. The gesture was so natural, casual, and unaffected that it erased immediately the time and distance between them. Dismissed as inconsequential, the prehistoric past in which generations here had lived and bred and died forgotten, and all the nebulous hopes and fears of a future yet unborn. The time was now, complete and self-sufficient. Gaylord felt like a vacuum suddenly filled with a rush of life. Emily! He ran forward, caught her as she rose, and clung eagerly to her warm and living softness that bent and gave to something within him that he had never dreamed existed. Their meeting on companionable procedure had begun in April. Now it was late June, and his first experiment in the simple mystery of living had begun, the only true science of mankind. Unusually late for Saturday, Ellen awoke feeling utterly depleted. Maria was having another baby. Five nights in a row, Helen had been obliged to stay up till midnight washing dishes after cooking all day and serving alone all evening. It was too much. Her arms were stiff. Her legs ached. There was not even any wood left for the morning fire, she suddenly remembered. This finally got her up. Putting on her old robe and moccasins, she went out with an axe to hack at some easily split cedar. The fall morning was swathed in a cheerless gray mist that veiled the mesa and trailed low and tenuously in the canyon. In the only visible cottonwood, a few leaves hung still and stiff and heavy as if hammered out of rusty iron and riveted to the stark branches. Even the song of the river was choked by the oppressive silence. She came back into the house. 
built a fire with bark and shavings in the fireplace, put water to boil on the kitchen stove, then chilled and too tired to take her usual morning bath, she huddled forlornly in her robe, waiting for her tea. Now, she admitted to herself, it was not the weather, the lack of help from Luis and Maria, nor her own work that depressed her. All summer, ever since Turner had left, she had been losing the deep inner security which assured her of continuing emergence to that new world still beyond her full realization. The first time she felt reduced again to merely a lone woman trying to earn a bare living by serving meals with inadequate makeshift facilities. This unwarranted slip back into an existence limited to mortal expediency had stripped from her the joy, glory, and staunch assurance of meaningful living. Helen was not only depressed, but a little frightened. She caught herself resenting the awakening that had promised so much, only withdrawal from her completely. Why? It wasn't fair. Somehow she had lost touch with herself, the only passport to the immortality of each living moment. It was now almost nine o'clock. She hurried out to the highway to meet the mailman on his slow delivery route, a pleasure she looked forward to daily. She had missed him another evidence of her negative state of mind. But he had left in the box a letter from Turner. Fixing her tea, she came back to the fireplace. The cedar, as she should have known, was throwing sparks out over the foreign rug. And in shaking down the sticks, she extinguished the blaze. The time she settled down again, her tea was lukewarm. Turner's letter was fat with clippings. She picked up the first random column that fell into her lap. Little Stops on the Chili Line by Jack Turner. This column believes in ghosts. Our preferences are pale spectral shapes that creep up midnight stairs, flit across dark arroyos, haunt weedy courtyards, guarding buried Spanish gold. Respectable ghosts. Reliable family ghosts. Old 60 is another kind of ghost. Squat, black, rusty iron, and planks up and down the yards. Ghost of vanished yesterday, of the era of romantic railroad days. Old 60 is the last of the consolidated 280 mountain climbing locomotives of the Colorado Midlands, one of the West's famous baby railroads in the boom days of the gay 90s. The line swung around the frosty peaks of the Rockies on its way from Colorado Springs, Colorado, to Salt Lake City, Utah. When gold was discovered on Pikes Peak, a new spur was built to Cripple Creek, the greatest gold camp on earth. The little 280 engine, numbers 59, 60, and 61, puffed up at its 4% grade, snorted through tunnels, wheeled round 16-degree curves over the 57 miles through the dizzy scenery. Inevitably bust followed boom. The Midland was abandoned like our chili line. A commercial metals company took up the rails. Locomotives 59 and 61 were put to the blowtorch. Decently cremated. Old 60s, cold and dead in the shop, was next. But we saved her life, seeing how she once saved ours, recalled the old railroader. It was an Engelman Canyon trestle hanging 50 foot high above the Monaco Springs. We were in her cab, pulling two box cars when the coupling broke. The rear car dropped and broke open, blocking all the Sunday excursionists going up Ruxton Avenue 
eat pink and green saltwater taffy at the Iron Springs Pavilion. And the second car drops dead eye on a wooden privy in the bushes. A Negro lady is settled on the glory seat. I always wondered what she thought when a boxcar practically dropped on her lap. But when they priced her out unhurt, she was too scared to say. Well, me and my fireman shoveling coal on the apron were wondering when our turn was coming to drop. But old Sixty hung on like a black panther spitting steam, wheels crawling at the rails. Yep, old Sixty hung on with us, safe in her cab. So before she could be put to the torch, we fired her up and opened the throttle. We proved she had got life yet. Every day now, I take her out as a yard goat, feeling like an old witch riding a broomstick, showing off to the kids and old timers. Yes, sir, you'd think they were seeing a ghost. Preposterous, Helen thought, dazedly sitting to it. Who nowadays would know what a 280-type locomotive was or care? But something in the colony, grave, assenting, flashing picture to hope, even the feeling expressed between its lines, brought back to her all the sounds and smells, the leisureliness and high adventure of the trip on her old Tilleran. Uncle John, portly and white-haired, waving to her from the engine cab, Andy ringing the bell for her to hurry. <clears throat> Mr. Jackson, the conductor, gallantly boosting her up the steps. Gracie giving the highball. She remembered the coarse texture and stale musty smell of the red plush cushions as she settled down next to the window of her lunchbox. The coal stove up front and the washroom to mark Mujeres and Hombres. Then suddenly jolting and crashing with couplings as the train got in the way. Now she was off, all care and worry left behind. New mesas, new canyons and valleys opening at every curve as she chugged up river. And accompanying these enchanting vistas, the swelling symphonies whose crashing brass high to the tapos and subtle overtones her life had been pitched for years on end. The steady clicky clack of the wheels on the rail joints beneath her, the squealing of the flanges in the sharp curves the rise and fall of the main and side rise. Time and again, her heart leapt at the mournful, lonesome, somehow gloriously triumphant, and yet infinitely poignant wail of the workers in the quill. There came the treasured halt to let the wheels and brakes shoes cool, and she could get out and watch Gracie stuff oil rags from the smoking hot box. The little siding, the gaunt water tank, tubercular agent Wallace standing the turntable at Enrico, and the wonder and mystery of the far off in the eyes of the simple Spanish people come to herald her arrival and departure. Now she could hear the little great factory talking as her driver bit into the grade of Barranca Hill, the muffled thunder of the exhaust against the blackened cliff. Andy was sweating on the apron now, she knew. Smoke was shooting high at every stroke of the pistons pressing her nose against the grimy window pane, she could see it rolling up the mountainside. Overhead, she heard the gentle ring of timbers on the roof of the coach. Ten minutes late, Mr. Jackson said importantly, taking out his wagon wheel watch as he stopped in the aisle at the country ticket. But we'll get you there on time, Miss Chalmers. But I'm not going anywhere, really, she wailed. On top of the grade, the three-footer gathered momentum as Uncle John led her out to the maximum speed of miles an hour. Country spread out. The 
vast, empty sea of sage beating against the far blue Colorado Rockies. Trace piedras, servilette the tank, no agua. And then, surfeited, down new scenery after months of confinement at a Chili Crossing, her whole body rhythmically adjusted to the jolting and bucking of the coach. It was time to unwrap her chicken sandwiches and spill from her thermos a cup of hot tea. It all came back to her now as she sat in the fireless room. Abruptly, she broke out into tears. She wept because it was all gone and would never come again. She wept because she was lonely, because her tea was cold, but mostly because Turner, in her cautious calm, revoked the love they had shared together. Drying her eyes, she skimmed through her sweater. Her throat knotted with both anticipation and apprehension. This column had been picked up by one of the big eastern wire services. Apparently, it, it appealed to frenetic war workers crowded in industrial centers and war installations throughout the country and to homesick boys overseas. There'll be a big exodus west after the war, mark my words, he wrote. But what they're all going to do out here in these barren deserts to the west, I don't know. But anyway, I've been tooting right along. Now before Christmas, listening for my whistle at a chilly crossing. I can't bear being away from you any longer. When I come back, I've got a big surprise for you. Neither of us is young, and time is getting shorter. Helen thrust the pages from her and covered her face with both hands. When she wept this time, it was not an easy flow of sentimentality. A great dry sob seemed to come from deep inside her, twisting and tearing every muscle as they broke forth. With them came the deep-rooted guilt she had hidden from herself. Yes, she had let him go without a clean break because she could not bear to pick him up. For month after month, she ate her cake and had it too, forever looking forward to his return and forever postponing her inevitable loss. On no other day of her life had she wanted him so much, the things they could share together, and all the little comforts and joys she prized for a few years seemed impossible to face alone the empty, aging years, and yet deep within her, still unquenched desire for the old world to which she still clung, she knew that she had never been allowed to have what she believed she wanted. Some unseen power had driven her from a young husband and a child in a comfortable home years ago, driven her to a remote and lonely lunch room at an unknown river crossing in a mountain wilderness. And now would it drive her, a middle-aged, lonely woman, from the last home and life companion to be offered her? Gripping her hands until the knuckles turned white, Helen fought to control her fright and resentment against the monstrous power. She didn't want to be bitter. She wasn't ready for an emergence into a new world, nebulous and unknown. And yet, having set her foot on the ladder, she could not resign herself to going back into a cramped interior existence. Why was it she couldn't have them both? Which did she want, really? Sitting in a chill room, besieged by the somber gray mist of a fall morning, Helen felt herself torn by forces she could not understand. And against the torture of their struggle, she could cry out, woman-like, only a weak and human woman, and I've never had my morning tea. There was no time for it now. She was aroused by a shrill, metallic squeaking. Out the window, 
Alan saw that it came from an unused axle and Facundo's old box wagon approaching the narrow suspension door. By the time he had arrived at the door, she had hurriedly washed her face in cold well water and regained some measure of composure. Facundo seemed not to notice her wet hair and swollen eyes. Maria, have that baby, he said casually. Man-child, big. That's fine, said Facundo. I'll go right over. Maybe don't go, he said softly but positively. She's sleeping all day. That's the way it is. He looked quietly and unhurriedly at the cold, smoking fireplace and around the disordered room, then turned toward the door. That noisy wheel, I grease him now. Don't need go. Good day to get wood in the mountains. She closed the door behind him. Why not, she thought, stuffing pussy in Levi's and stout shoes, laying out mittens and a heavy coat. She was making some sandwiches when Facundo came in the kitchen door. Them cold sandwiches white people eat. No good. Fire and meat. Stay better in the mountains. She found some chops, put bread and fruit in a paper sack, filled the coffee bags. Then they started up the canyon. The plodding broomtails and patched harness with ridiculous eye blinders. The springless Studebaker with an axe clumping around in an empty wagon box. And Facundo and herself sitting on a plank seat covered with a tattered Navajo blanket against splinters. The old Indian sat comfortably erect. The reins held loosely but without too much slack in his lap. There was a wrench in the knee of his trousers, she noticed and one ripped moccasin was held together with a deep string. Around his coarse graying hair he wore, Santa Domingo style, a brilliant red silk rag. His dark, wrinkled face looked solid as weathered mahogany. She, he did not talk. Soon she forgot him. They were plodding steadily uphill now, the horses keeping their places out of the spot, their breath spurting out like smoke. The canyon wall to the left was sheer black basalt. To the right rose a steep slope, thickly forested with spruce and pine. Over them both, the mist still hung, silver gray, wispy, and tenuous as the cobwebs. Suddenly, she felt a cozy dampness and smelled the moist fragrance of sage and pine. Summer had been so hot and dry, with dust over everything and swarms of grasshoppers, that Helen now welcomed the mist with the promise of winter snow. It was so good on the face. So fresh to breathe, but it was chilly and cool. Facundo unfolded his shoulder blanket. She moved closer to him so he could wrap it around both her shoulders. In this enclosed proximity, she became aware of his peculiar, spicy Indian smell, so different from the rather sweetish odor of her own race. It was strong, but not disagreeable, and soon she did not notice it. When the canyon widened out and widened out, Facundo turned to follow the faint, rutted track of wagon wheels. These rough, almost indistinguishable wood roads, long used by only those going after firewood, crept through the whole area. Soon, Facundo stopped from clearing in the forest. He unhitched, unharnessed, and hobbled the horses to graze. The yellow grama or bunch grass was short and dry, but Helen knew it was nutritious. Down below, in on by had nourished immense birds with buffalo, and stock would still keep fat on it all year if it were not overgrazed. Without a word, Facundo took his axe into the woods with Helen at his heels. 
He was not idly gathering dry sticks for a Christmas fire now. He wanted to stout logs that would curl up with bulwark of heat against the long winter's night. Helen watched him collect the pine, dead but still sound, and measure its length with a sharp eye. Then he set to work, amazing how much strength his thin, aching body still had, as his axe bit into the trunk. Perhaps it was lifelong skill rather than strength, for he wasted no stroke. Each bite of his blade deepened the previous cut, scarfed as smooth as if the cut had caught it. The last stroke he stepped back, the lofty pine had crashed neatly into an opening in the brush where there was room for him to trim off his branches. And now, without pause, he began to cut the trunk into wagon lengths. A strange feeling crept over Helen as she watched him. How many generations had a woman followed her man here, watching him gathering their leafless wood? She wandered deeper into the forest, crystal gummy sacks of pine cones. How dark and cold it was under these great pines, these lofty tops of thousands of years. Years of fallen eagles had built up underfoot a soft and springy mat upon which lay the cones. Each one, it seemed to her, was a skeleton tree in miniature. And deep in the heart of its tree, she was sure there must be another microscopic pattern of a future tree to come. In a century, the ceaseless cycle. Occasionally, she froze to watch a bird flutter from the high branch, plucking its feathers with a sharp beak, its tiny black eyes shining in the dark. How many there were that she saw before? Grosbeaks, towhees, juncos, and bluebirds. Back in the clearing, she built a small fire at which she could stand, her coat spread out like a blanket to catch the heat. These white people's fires, she remembered her friendless companion once. They're so big, people stand far away and freeze. Little fire under the blanket, medium red, but warm. When he came, they cooked their chops, ate bread and butter sandwiches and fruit, and sat drinking coffee. The food gave Helen strength hot black coffee she felt like rising within her. Trouble and weather were never so bad when you got out into the heat. It was always fun to be out here gathering one's own wood. Once she'd been taken down, taken down an old coal mine near her home. Never thereafter could she abide the thought of burning coal. The very smell of it reminded her of those black, sweating bodies coiling in the ground like scaries. Secunda was too busy to talk. The minute he finished lunch, he began sharpening his axe with a rusty file. Helen was content to sit watching the precise movements of his delicate dark hands. Finally, he stood up and smiled. Now I cut pinions, burn good, smell good, too. I'll help, he offered cheerfully. His face quieted. He nodded vaguely toward the flat top of the forest of maple behind her. Maybe you climb up there, find something. Pueblo ruined Facundo? Oh, why haven't you told me about it before? Maybe it's Pueblito, he corrected her. Maybe some old houses, maybe all that. But these did not diminish the city's presence. Yes, what's it called, Facundo? Maybe no name. Maybe forgot. He did not tell her. As always, he shut off her direct questioning. Nor would he point out its location and thus draw off its power. He merely nodded sideways at a rocky point without looking at it. Hold spring by that rock, maybe you find trail close 
walking eastward. She hurried off to the foot of the rocky point. A landslide had covered the stream, but she found where it oozed up through the brush and matted the pine needles. The trail was too old to be clearly visible. With difficulty, she traced its course up and across the steep slope. Soon, she was above the pine tip. The canyon below, filled with mist, looked like a gray and turbulent sea. She kept climbing. Near the top, she could have loved as cool of delight as she had of the scared death. To the right, a trail led up to the top of the mesa. Straight ahead, she saw a wide, canyon passage overhung by the sepulchral castle. And here, at the fort, she saw stacks in the rocks, the weathered clump of hair stems, the little feathered plume, bound with hard yarn, yarn to those hard stones that men had planted here for centuries when their hearts were wet. Without touching them, she hurried ahead on the canyon passage, and there she saw it small group of cliff houses clustered protectively under the overhanging ledge which had served as a tomb. The front wall had fallen, stones washing down the steep precipice. The side walls filled with fern and sinews, like two outstretched arms holding between them the crumbling stone partitions of the tiny room. Inside, she dropped to her knees and let ancient, coffin-like dust dribble through her fingers. As she had hoped, contained a small piece of charcoal. It was then, suddenly, she felt the radio tuned in. Years ago, someone had asked her, Why is it, darling, that almost any place you go, you can find shirts, edges, handles, all kinds of pieces of pottery? I go to the same places for hours and can't even turn up an arrowhead. Helen had laughed a little self-consciously. Why, I guess it's just my radio or something like it, and that seems to turn on. The farther I go in a certain direction, the more excited I get. Pretty soon, I just feel angry all over. I don't know where to turn or anything. Can I just stick out my hand, rock carving, one piece of stone, oh, any place, and whatever it is, it just seems to come right into my hand. And that's the way it was now. Continually mounting excitement that had led her like a radar beam to plod among the tumbled stone partitions and the debris at the back of the ledge. Finally, against the dark back wall. Feverish, she now, conscious only of the excitement in Helen's head. Helen stuck her hand down into the choked mouth of a hollow in the floor. It leapt to her fingers. The smooth round edge, which carefully scooped out, became the rim of a large, perfectly formed hole. Helen carried it out to the light, a sob of triumph hovering between laughter and tears. The brush free of dirt, the bowl glowed reddish brown. Blade, black symbols, the keening serpent moving in its high sky path around the circle. Its smooth texture, unblemished, gave her a thick blob of clay stuck to the rim. Inward, Helen now saw the clear imprint of a woman's thumb. She was still standing on the ledge, trembling, touching her discovery, when she heard the faint, familiar hum of wild geese flying south. In a moment, she could detect the undulating Sweeping toward her, high in the mist. Always, she had believed, her thoughts had followed the course of the river below. Now she knew that some of them used the plateau to mark their highways. That ancient, novel piece of equipment, thumb sucking into the wet clay, stuck to her kitchen side, must have watched their passage too, as she prepared to leave. She mustered her courage the most ominous. 
bounded over the ridge. The wild beast swerved, dipped towards us. One could see the sharp points of the weeds, the two trailing lines separating into distinguishable projectiles of lightning speed. Instinctively, she braced herself against the airway shock of their hurtling passage. At that instant, it happened again. A strange sensation, after the cataclysmic pulsing of her body, visioning of her spirit, and with it the instantaneous fusion of everything about her into one undivided living whole. In an unbroken continuity, a microscopic life pattern through seeds of fallen clones unfolded in straight lines. Her fingers closed over the splotch of clay on the bowl in her arms, just as the novel wrote lies their separation of centuries. She could feel the enduring mist pooling and moistening a thousand dry summits. The mountain peaks stood firm against the wind. Eternity flowed in the river below. And all this gelling of life and time was so complicated now took place in that single instant when the wedges of wild beasts hurtled past her, hurtled so swiftly that centuries of spousal migration, generations of were condensed into a single smooth serpent with its flat reptilian head outstretched, feet drawn back up, and solitary body feathers displaced by the wind, which seemed to be hanging immobile above them against the gray, hollow depths of the sky. Nothing, she knew, could ever alter this immemorial and rigid order. Not the mysterious explosion from the hills, nor the ever that discusses civilization. This was the unchanging essence to which the life of mankind is ultimately linked. With this reassuring conviction, the fierce proudness and humble richness of her life as Chloe Kaufman rushed back at her with new significance and challenge. A woman and a seeking woman. It could defy time and speak civilization to heal. As if a switch had been turned on again, life resumed its wild beasts stepped past, the wind scowled through the pines, her heart took up its beat. But as it had before, the wonder and the mystery and the beauty When she reached the wagon, the hundo had filled it with fluid and lashed it with load fast as rope. What could she say? It was all in her shining eyes and her vibratory aura about her and the pot in her arms. The hundo stepped back as she held it full. He was no longer a ragged old man out cutting wood on a cold Saturday. He was again a living receptacle into which had been ceremonially spilled the esoteric wisdom of a tribal entity handed down from when the remote past in which mankind had survived only through the direct intuition of the living powers of earth and sky. That got the power, he said quietly. I don't touch. No. He would neither touch the old bowl nor sit in contact with her all the way home. Helen shivered without a blanket on the tent beside him. He felt too happy, a little too lightheaded to stay. Nor did she mind striking back and tired and cold, dark to Davy, while Fecundo unloaded his wagon. He showed up quietly with the solemn face of the kitchen door. Come in, Fecundo. I'll have some supper ready in just a few minutes. I go. All right, but wait till I fix a little package of nice things for the cake Maria. I wait, he answers patiently. And the package is tied and stuffed 
off with the bag, Holly turned around to see him steadily staring at her with a look of rage and pain. That leave will come no more, he said without preamble. Working on that new road, get rich, he said. The information struck Holly clearly. Not that Pat Louise had gone to work on the new road beyond Blacktop between Espanola and Hill. The high wages were drawing in there, as well as Spanish men from all the valley. Nor that after all these years of service to her, he had left her without so much as a word. But that Secundo had waited all day to tell him, why? And that they got Maria no come too, that baby may be made too much work for him. Han had heard that Duke was short of his help in the makeshift living quarters. Almost every woman up on the hill was working at something in the project. Mary Perez Jr., every morning busloads of engineers were transported from San Ildefonso and Santa and taken home again at night without cost. Free ride for nothing, lots of money besides. Maria had grumbled, watching the crowded buses rumble over the bridge. Helen had no doubt about it. You know about man to chop wood, get water. You know about woman to cook, carry him plates to people. You got nobody on him. Secundo's voice was flat and expressionless. If she had received the dire news this morning, Helen knew she would have been completely stricken. It was a blow even now. Where could she ever get competent, loyal help now at the modest wages she could afford? But she felt instilled with Oh, I haven't, she answered forthrightly. But I know I'll make it somehow, just like long ago. Secundo looked at her a long time, and stated in the same flat voice, I come, living in that little house now. That old adobe out in back? Why, it's freeze to death. Get in the door, maybe stove, you think. Who's here from the Pueblo, Secundo? Aunt Maria and Luis miss you, and stay going, I say. It was all talk between the time to catch her breath. For a suggestion had broken upon her immediately with the incontrovertible truth of something long written in invisible ink that she had suddenly learned to read. All right, Secundo. Tomorrow we'll talk about getting rid of the stove from Montgomery Ward. I'm going to buy you some new clothes, too. You must be neat and clean to help move lots of people around. You won't mind that, Secundo? She finished anxiously. She smiled with a warmth. I go in there. A moment again, Helen felt detained by a destiny that somehow always overpowered her. She dropped off to sleep without questioning. 10. Turner, as the sole passenger on his imaginary chili line, was having a great time tuning through the mountains and deserts of the storied Southwest. Its hell poppin' past and its lethargic present he mixed freely. Like prospectors of old, he sought specks of color, not statistics. He had an eye for the ignored significant. In this, with the practiced hand of a journalist, he translated into columns that were casually read with high interest and amusement, and also clipped for reference by the more wary. Where he would stop next was always unpredictable. In one column, he described tooting his way through the Hornado del Muerto, the historic journey of death in southern New Mexico. At the upper end, he stopped at the tiny hamlet of San Antonio, 
Then he spent a night with a rancher named MacDonald, who ran a bunch of cattle on a sparse range thirty miles south. His gaunt wooden house was the only building in the desolate desert valley, but MacDonald was immune to heat, hardship, and loneliness, treasuring his privacy. Near Uravan in southwestern Colorado, an abandoned processing mill snared his attention. About the beginning of the century, he found carnotite ore had been processed here to extract radium for the experiments of the French scientists Marie and Pierre Curie. For a decade, this vast, rugged Colorado plateau had been the world's chief source of radium. Then richer deposits were discovered in the Belgian Congo, and mining had ceased. The abandoned mill was now but another relic of the past, forgotten in a heart-rendingly beautiful wilderness that, thank God, would never be open to exploitation and industrialization. The great upland deserts of Nevada he found just as serenely remote from man's foibles. He ambled north from Las Vegas to a lonely valley just east of awesome Death Valley itself. A leather-necked old desert rat showed him a forgotten ghost town called Wamoni, near Jackass Flat, a few miles out from the cottonwood oasis of Indian Springs. Turner listened appreciatively as the old prospector recalled a hilarious Saturday night during its brief boom. But it was the empty awesomeness of the valley itself that ate deeper into his feelings. Its great Frenchman's flat and Yucca flat, separated only by a solitary bare rock ridge, Standing on this, he saw the desert, flat as a pancake, stretching away on both sides. The ancient lake bed rippled with heat waves. The wind whined through the weird cacti. Turner returned to town, feeling that perhaps no other area in the country remained so inaccessibly remote. Next day, he headed south for California before highballing back home. A man long rooted to a house full of relics and the local traditions they imbued, he had realized he could live with a handbag and a portable typewriter. But he could not live without Helen. Everywhere he went, he imagined her accompanying him. But the mountain would not come to Muhammad, so Muhammad was going back to the mountain of his desire. Every night in his successive hotel rooms, he sketched out a plan for enlarging her little tea room. A big dining room here, a larger kitchen there, a pantry, perhaps a small bar and a new wing to live in. All modern, with the latest gadgets. No more drawing water from a well. For himself, he would build a separate workroom, utilizing the old adobe and back. Thenceforth, they would live together happily ever after, each doing his own work. Why not? How could they, at middle age, face dreary lives alone? Still, a strange uneasiness followed him into California, over Cajon Pass and into Riverside, where he checked into the Mission Inn. No room was available at the moment, the desk clerk told him, but one would be ready within an hour. Turner settled down to wait in a quiet corner of the lobby. The hotel, long, had been one of his favorites. Built around three patios and surmounted by four towers, it was a Kabbalistic maze of flower gardens, shady walks, cloisters, balconies, fountains, turrets, and domes, with several art galleries, a baronial hall, and the complete St. Francis Chapel with its Murillo and beaten golden reredos 
brought up from Mexico. Every square foot was so choked with antiques and relics, Spanish, Mexican, Indian, Chinese, and Japanese, Californian, and an oversized chair specially made to accommodate President Taft, that it reminded Turner more of a collector's nightmare than a hotel. Yet Turner loved the place. The inn, although he didn't realize it, was merely a monstrous exaggeration of his own cluttered adobe in La Reja. Bored with waiting, he got out his portable typewriter. A column had to be mailed off that night. He could write it now, and it might just as well be on something familiar as the mission in itself. It came easily. Whistle Stops on the Chili Line by Jack Turner The gracious mission in at Riverside, California, as patterned after the famous Spanish missions of two centuries ago. One of the great bells for which the inn is noted lends it the air of authenticity. When its mellow silver voice echoes through the dusky corridors, the guest says softly, Listen, there speaks the past of brown-robed Franciscan fathers walking by, the Indians coming in from the vineyard to mass. It's, why, it's historic. The bell is, indeed, of what the old trader in New Mexico told us about it is true. I reckon you know that pint-sized Mexican village of Santa Gertrude's in the Sangre de Cristos here, he asked. Likewise, its old church? Well, that bell hung in its belfry. A doddering old belfry it was. What with snow and rain washing away the dobie and no money to patch it up. Of course that bell fell, just like I knowed it would. So one night, with a couple of Indian boys, I hitched up a team, filled a wagon with straw, by morning, we had that bell loaded and hit back over the pass. You stole that bell, we demanded. Not so fast, son. All I'm saying is we couldn't puff back up the pass. The grade was too steep with that big bell. By this time, the padre discovered she was gone. He took after us, hell for leather, and jumped us. I put it up to him, fair and square. He could take back the bell, but he didn't have any place to hang it. Or he could let me pay him some money to fix up the church, the bell or the church. He could take it or leave it. The old trader grinned. The padre was stuck and he knowed it. He took the dinero. I took the bell. We had to drive it plumb around the Sangres and back up river. Of course, I got a fair piece of change when I finally sold her to Frank Miller's fancy posada out in Riverside. There she hangs today, crying to get back home. That's what you might hear in her tone, homesickness, for the frosty sangres on a cold Sunday morning, the rustling of cornstalks in the milpas, the voices of all them people married and buried. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, we accused him. The old trader's eyes twinkled. But she kept them people from losing their church, a right Christian-like sacrifice, what? So maybe she don't sound as sad as you figure. By the time Turner finished, a bellboy came to his room to say it was ready and followed him upstairs. It is queer how the mind works. His column on the memory of that bell had opened the gates to deeper memories that now told in his consciousness. What a damnable trick had been played upon him. There on the wall of the hallway hung the old oil of Guadalupe with the tiny rent in the canvas that Helen's quick eye had detected immediately. A few steps beyond it was her... There, room, number 39, designated La Sala de los Recuerdos Dulces, 
the room of sweet memories. With a grunt compounded of a curse and a groan, Turner followed the bellboy inside and confronted the bittersweet memories it evoked.